You are listening to the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc. Morning, church. Are you happy to be here? I'm happy you are here. And uh, first service was amazing. The Lord showed up. And I'm expecting for this morning as well. It's already, I've already sensed his presence in a significant way here uh, during worship. Amen. Um, Happy Father's Day to the fathers out there. If you are a father, would you stand to your feet? I just want us as a church to bless you, to pray for you. Um, There's a psalm that my wife framed for me and that I have hanging in my office, Psalm 128. And I want us to pray this blessing for fathers uh, upon the men of this church. So thankful for each one of you and been praying for you this week that God would meet you here this morning and that not only would you feel celebrated, but that he would meet you in a personal way, in a way that fills you up and equips you uh, to be the man of God that God's called you to be. And so this is what Psalm 128 says. Just receive this from the Lord. You can close your eyes, uh, put yourself in a posture, receive from the Lord. Blessed are all these men who fear the Lord, these fathers. They're blessed because they fear the Lord. These men who walk in his ways. These men shall eat the fruit of their labor, of their hands. They will be blessed, and it shall be well with them. These men, their their wives will be like a fruitful vine within their homes. Their children will be like olive shoots around their table. Behold, thus these, these men will be blessed who fear the Lord. The Lord bless these men from Zion, from heaven. May they see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of their life. May they see their children's children. Peace be upon Israel. So Lord, I pray that blessing upon these men this morning. Heavenly blessing. For wisdom, not of themselves, not of the flesh, of the natural, but from heaven. A wisdom to lead their homes, to navigate the winds of this generation in a way that points their children, their whole entire household towards the things of you, towards the priorities of the kingdom. Lord, I pray for men in this church that would just be so on fire with a love for you, first and foremost, that they would truly sense the weighty anointing uh, of the appointment of being a priest of their homes in your mighty name, amen. So we celebrate you this morning, men. We love you. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8. That's where we're going to be this morning. Um, I shared last week just an update from from our lives, me me and my family's uh, life, that I'm going to be entering into a season of rest for uh, eight weeks starting June 28th. That's something the Lord's been putting on my heart, kind of to trust him, uh, to die to the need to be needed, and to to trust him, to go up the mountain with him and just receive from him, not to uh, have any word to give to you all, but just to receive from him as as a son. And so... I'm doing that starting June 28th. We'll be gone for eight weeks. And uh, I'll be sending out a message via email through the church email uh, just with some sp- specific prayer points uh, for our church family in this season because I do feel like there is 
a sense of expectation that we should have going into that season. The Lord truly is preparing us. Yes, he's preparing us as the Lord's under shepherds of this church, but, um, but he's preparing us as a church family for all that he has for us in the days to come. So I'm expectant for this summer, although it'll be different. Um, so we are going to dive into 1 Samuel chapter 8 and look at um, this generation that's being awakened to the things of the Lord. We, we saw back in 1 Samuel chapter 3 how when Samuel was just a boy, the word of the Lord was rare. That's 1 Samuel chapter 3 verse 1. The word of the Lord was rare. Well, the Lord raised up a Samuel, a prophet for his nation, that turned the tide of his generation. It's a beautiful story. So then we see 1 Samuel chapter 4 verse 1. It says the word of the Lord spread throughout, throughout all Israel. So in one generation, the tide turned. And it's a beautiful picture of the awakening that I think we all desire to be a part of, that the hearts of people would be turned towards the Lord. That's what he's called the, the church to be, is to be a voice um, of awakening for a generation, to turn people towards the thing that really matters most, matters of eternity. And, and Samuel uh, was such a voice. So this morning I want to share a message entitled, Come and Be Our King, as we look towards the end of Samuel's life, uh, he's, he's starting to get older now by 1 Samuel chapter 8. Um, and there are some lessons I believe that we need, to, we need to learn from Samuel's life here towards the end, and where he doesn't necessarily pass the baton all that well to the next generation. As he begins to appoint his sons to lead in Israel as judges, um, something gets mishandled. The baton is fumbled, is um, is dropped, and, and something is revealed then in Israel that I want us to learn from this morning. There is this sense in all of us where we, we want a leader, and God has created this, this like accurate awareness that we don't have the answers in ourselves, and so that is meant to be fulfilled in him. That's meant to be fulfilled as him, as our king, as our supreme leader, uh, in whom is found all wisdom and all the leadership that we need is found in him. But there's this human tendency to put that expectation upon other people, upon other just human leaders. And it's a, it's a weighty, you know, impossible expectation. But we, I mean, if we'd be honest, we put people on pedestals. We, we long for a savior, for, you know, to look to somebody to lead us in this crazy world. We want justice, we want someone to fight our battles. And it's, it's kind of those two primary things that we'll see is revealed in the heart of Israel. They want justice, they want things to be made right, and they want someone to fight their battles. And so they end up putting people on pedestals, um, and wrongfully so. So let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1. It says, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. And the name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. <clears throat> Excuse me. They took bribes and they perverted justice. They, they picked up the wrong baton, because if you remember from prior weeks, they picked up the baton of Eli and his sons. They, they were leaders in Israel who walked in these same ways. 
They, they perverted the, the things of the Lord. They twisted the things of the Lord in a way that was self-serving. They, they, took, they treated the things, the sacred things of the Lord as though they were common. And they, they entered into the, the holy places in a casual way and made a mockery of it all. And so somehow, in some way, Samuel's sons didn't grab the baton from, from Samuel. And it's a real tragedy. God's best for the church, for his people, is for there, there to be this awakening from generation to generation, for us to move from glory to glory, be made into the image of Christ together as a collective, as the body of Christ, that he may be all in all. It's in Ephesians chapter 2, the prayer of Paul. And so here is a key we need to remember from 1 Samuel chapter 8, this is these first few verses. We cannot assume that the next generation will just get it. We have to take t- time, take opportunities to, to hand the, gener- the next generation similar opportunities to what we had. Think back to Samuel's story, and you can, if you weren't here in prior weeks, you can go back and look at his life story. Before he knew the Lord, he had positioned himself in the presence of the Lord. He had learned to begin to minister to the Lord before he even knew the Lord. And then he began to discern the voice of the Lord for himself. Not through Eli, but for himself. He began to discern the voice of the Lord. And that is the the path that every person has to go on for themselves to to come to this place where personally they've received the Lord for themselves and they've come into a relationship with him. No one is exempt from that call to come into personal relationship, into a personal encounter with the Lord. And so somehow, in some way, that didn't happen for Samuel's sons. And so part of our role from one generation to the next is to show them towards the path. We can't assume that they, they know where the path is. We can't pull them down the path. We can't force them. You can't force the next generation to worship. You can't force them to make a decision for Jesus, but you can point them towards the path. You can say, go in this way. This is, these are the experiences that I've had in the Lord. Go and seek the Lord for yourself. Like, I urge you, I, I exhort you, go and seek the Lord for yourself so they can have those experiences. And in the end, the ball is in their court. They have to make a decision for themselves. They have to choose for themselves. But as much as it's on me, I'm going to create environments and create opportunities for my kids to encounter the Lord for themselves, that it becomes a real, authentic faith. They encounter truth, the person of truth, Jesus. That's a huge reason we've been pushing um, our Bible camps here that are coming up in July, we've been pushing them so hard and we believe so heavily in the investment of you know, a couple hundred bucks to send our kids to camp. Not because it's going to be the silver bullet for them, but it's again, another drop in the bucket, another environment for which they, they, can, they can come into these personal moments with the Lord for themselves. Like we're, tell, we're communicating that to them, that we believe in you, yourself, encountering Jesus in those places. And so we have an amazing crew of, you know, 20 plus kids going to kids camp and an amazing crew of youth going to, to youth camp. So can you join me in the coming weeks praying for our young people as they go to camp? Some of you do. There were, there were a few heads that nodded. And the rest of you are like, no, I'm not going to say yes. Um, but please join with me. Um, what's at stake, not just camp, but like what's at stake if we don't get this responsibility upon us to... Um, to give the next generation opportunities to encounter the Lord for themselves. 
the, the trappings of religion are really what's at stake. We surround them with these things and never point them to the person of Jesus himself, but we surround them with facades of buildings and positions and titles, and they can actually go in a very scary path towards the trappings of religion and self-righteousness. And actually, I see that oftentimes, especially as I've ministered over the years on the campus. Church kids oftentimes were the toughest to, to minister the gospel to because they had been so convinced of their own goodness and their own righteousness because they've done the right things, not realizing they, they so desperately need an encounter with the Lord themselves personally. And so um, that's what's at stake. Let's keep reading uh, verse four. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the, th- but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all, the ways, or in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. So that is the, like, the key verse for the entire morning. The, the crux of the, the veering of the path of Israel was not so much a rejection of Samuel in, in that, that single moment in time, but it was actually a heart rejection of the Lord as king over them. Verse 8, according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Israel wasn't rejecting Samuel. They, They were, but they weren't. Ultimately, in the grand story that the Lord was, redemptive story that the Lord was writing, They were rejecting the Lord as king over Israel. That was the way that the Lord had appointed Israel to be different from all other nations. Not to be some monarchy with an earthly human leader, but instead to be a kingdom not of this world, the Lord being the supreme leader over Israel, and to function completely differently. And so some of us may be scratching our heads as you read this, is the Lord changing his priorities? Is like he giving up on his plan? Is he aborting his plan to be the king over Israel? He's like, okay, well, they, they want it. You know, I'll relent. I'll, I'll give them the king that they, they want. He's not aborting his plan. He's taking the roundabout path, which I think is a beautiful picture of the sovereignty of the Lord. Like the Lord will bring about his plans of redemption for humanity, for, for all of existence. You can know that, like with or without you. doesn't matter how stubborn you are or, or um, how hard you make it for him. He will bring about his redemptive plans. And so he relents. He gives them a king. They'll, they'll come to realize he's going to warn them that this path, that through this path, it's impossible for their desires to be satisfied outside of him. But they won't hear it. And so then we'll see, as the story unfolds, that the Lord, is, he gives them the desires of their heart, gives them a king, and ultimately, even through an earthly king, he's going to point them through, through this royal line back to himself. I think this is what makes God's sovereignty more beautiful than anything you can imagine. He can use our failings, 
and our errors and still bring about his plans. And that's not an excuse for you to live however you want. It's like he will move forward with his plan with or without you. And so he was their king. If you remember back through the, the wilderness wanderings, well, actually delivering out of Egypt, he was their supreme leader. He led them. He was their salvation. He was the one who fought their battles, brought about the justice. In the wilderness, he was their provider. He was their supreme, supreme leader. Into the promised land, he was their, the one who led the way. They were different than all other nations. But then they rejected him as their king right here. And he gave them their desires, an earthly king. But it was through that king and this line of kings, this royal line, that will point them back to him, back, back to him, to the king of all kings. So it's a roundabout path, but it's still fulfilling his purposes. And this is spoken about in the book of Acts beautifully. It's summarized. All this took about 450 years, them being in Egypt. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel, the prophet, so the story we're reading right now. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. So that's in the next, the next chapter. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. So he is their king. He will always be our king. He'll always be Israel's king. He'll always be our king. He'll always be the, the head of the church, with or without us. So the Lord tells Samuel to grant the people their request, but he does warn them. He says, please just, just warn them. That's his kindness. It's his grace that gives his people a warning. In verse 7, he takes it upon himself. He takes the rejection, Israel's rejection, upon himself. You know, in a lot of ways, the Lord could have been very difficult, on, could have been very hard on Samuel. I mean, Samuel failed Israel in many ways. Samuel failed the Lord in many ways by not properly raising up his sons to lead their generation. He failed, but yet the Lord took it upon himself. He said, Samuel, don't take this too hard. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me because the Lord is the author and the perfecter of this redemptive story, has this grander picture beyond Samuel. Like he, he sees this human tendency for people, not just, to, not just to reject God's appointed leaders in certain moments of time, but to ultimately reject him. And so Samuel did play a part in Israel's rejection. He really did. It was his failure in leadership that caused Israel to misconstrue the character of God. They, they, the people of Israel had a hard time seeing the Lord as the good leader as a trustworthy leader because of the failings of Samuel. And the same happens in the church today. Leaders and, and people in the church, they, they disappoint. They cause people to misconstrue what God is like. I mean, almost on a weekly basis, I, I sit with people who, who have been hurt by the church. They've been hurt by, by leaders in the church or people who at least are in positions of leadership in churches. And they're, they're hurt. And what happens is through those experiences, they have this tainted view of what God is like. And that's what happened here in Israel. Like Samuel failed them, his sons failed them, and they began to misconstrue what God is like. And what happens is when you don't see the Lord, right, his character, right, you begin to look around and you begin to see what other people have. And so Israel was doing that. They looked at other nations. They're like, wow, those monarchs, like the, the, the monarchies of other nations are just really amazing. It's kind of, they kind of romanticize it and they, they say, wow, the, 
the, the, the confidence by which they lead and the, the beauty and the splendor of their kingdoms. We want that. And they begin to lust for these things. That's what happens in our own lives when we get disappointed by the failings of people. But if we take the focus of other people disappointing us and other people not living up to our own expectations, we look to ourselves, we can realize that maybe we, we put people in positions to fail us, to always disappoint us. You know, we, we put people on pedestals. We put people in, in places where we treat, like, treat them like they're unshakable, like they're invincible. I want to liberate you this morning from disappointment. This is not uh, an encouragement to incite some sort of like cynicism in you, but instead to give you proper perspective. You can be liberated from the disappointment of, of other finite people that will fail you, that will sometimes fail to live up to your expectations. And the, and the way we do it is by placing Jesus as the premier leader in our lives. That is the, the, the mark of maturity as, as a follower of Jesus. And it's actually how we weaponize disappointment in this life. Other people wrong us. Other people fail to live up to our expectations. And the enemy loves to use those things as a foothold, as a stronghold over your life to create doubt and unbelief and frustration and discouragement. And so the mark of maturity is to actually turn that against the enemy and to say, the, the king is still on his throne. King Jesus is leading me. He is my shepherd, and he's leading me into green pastures. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And that's what we begin to speak, and that's how you, liber, you're, you are liberated from disappointment in your life. And time and time again, the saints in the, uh, in the household of the Lord I, I've seen have that marker of maturity to weaponize disappointment and frustration from other people. So again, I'm not trying to incite some sort of cynicism in you uh, that everyone will disappoint you, disappoint you. People are amazing. You just tell, tell your neighbor right now, you are amazing. Come on, tell your neighbor they're amazing, okay? Don't tell them that you know they're gonna disappoint you. <laughs> so, <laughs> but you could another, another day. But not to, don't do that to the fathers today. Uh, it's Father's Day, so just say you're amazing. Fathers, you guys are awesome. Let's look at verse 10. Um, so Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking from, uh, for a king from him. And he said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground, to reap his harvest and make, make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. And he will take your daughters to be perfumers, perfumers and cooks and bakers. And he will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and, your, and of your vineyard and give it to his officers and to his servants. And he will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to work. And he will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for, for themselves or for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Verse 19, but the Lord refused to obey, or, sorry, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. They said, no, we will not listen to you. Like, we got to figure it out, Samuel. But there shall be a king over us. 
that we may also be like all the other nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So there it is again, the, the two like, um, most basic human desires. We want justice, we want someone to fight our battles, and that's what they wanted. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord, which I think is a beautiful description of prayer. He actually, the Lord doesn't have ears, but in human terms, it's like he was speaking directly to the ear of the Lord. He had the Lord's ear, and he, he communed with the Lord in that way. In verse 22, and the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. So their spoken desire, even after Samuel prophetically warned them of what, to, what was to come, their spoken desire was, we want someone who can execute justice, bring about that which, which we know is rightfully ours, that which is, is fair and right, like we all have that desire. And we want a king who will go out before us and fight our battles. So let's break this, let's break this warning down. What is the reality that we receive through human leaders Because this is all of us. When we put people on pedestals and we long for things to be made right, we want someone to fight our battles, and we, and we actually put that upon other people, other humans, other finite humans, we will be disappointed. And what is, the, what is the reality of that? Well, verse 11, he says, leaders will send out our kids as soldiers to fight the battle. Because the the like, obvious reality of the finiteness of, of humans is that they can't go, a human leader cannot go out and fight your battles for it, otherwise they won't be a leader anymore. Like they cannot go and give themselves on the battlefield, otherwise that'll be the end of their leadership. So it's like an obvious fact. They have to actually draft people, recruit other people to go and fight the battles. So it's, it's not even, he's not even saying it's a bad thing. He's just like, that's the reality of it. We're talking about humans, human kings, and the divine, like God overall, sovereign, most powerful being in the universe. And so this is the limitation of earthly leadership. They cannot fight your battles for you. They can raise up other people to fight some battles, but they cannot fight your battles for you. Verse 12, leaders will have to appoint, it says appoint for himself commanders and workers because human leaders cannot be everywhere at the same time. They have to raise up representatives to say, hey, you go and you go work in the fields. You go and um, be an ambassador to this neighboring nation. You go. I can't be everywhere at the same time, so I'm going to appoint people to go and be a representative of myself because human leaders cannot be everywhere, so they have to appoint these people because they're limited. They're finite. And then verses 14 through 15, there's that long line of uh, warnings of how the king is going to take all their stuff. Leaders will have to tax you. They will have to charge you to just to make this society function. Like if you're going to abort my ways of me being your provider, me, me allowing Israel to flourish and function without some forcible uh, taxation, then this is what your leader will do. They will tax you. They will charge you to make the society function. That's the realities of a finite society. Earthly leaders will have to do that. And so Samuel, like, like a good parent, like just kind of warns them, like this is the path if you, if you choose this. That they reject the Lord as their king. The Lord is so different than, than this. 
And Israel didn't have a grid to see, because of hurts, because of disappointments, they didn't have a grid to see God as different than all of this. You'd think that as Samuel warns them of what's coming, if they had an accurate revelation of what God is like, they'd see it as a stark contrast from what they'd experienced. They'd be like, yeah, that's not, that's not the, what we've experienced is the Lord is our leader. He didn't send our kids into battle. He didn't, he didn't have to uh, appoint uh, representatives and commanders. In fact, his presence always went with us, and, and he didn't tax us. But they didn't because of the hurt and disappointment. They misconstrued the character of God, so... I'm, I'm trying to summarize here. Um, so our prayer this morning is for Jesus to come and be our king. He is the one who is the bringer of our justice and the one who fights our battles. If they would have only, if Israel would have just remembered their history, of which they were like keenly aware, like especially in the generation of Samuel that had been restoring, I mean, had been a part of this massive awakening and revival in his generation. They would have known Exodus chapter 14 where Moses says to the people, as they're standing at the Red Sea, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Like if that would have informed their way of seeing their situation, they would have rejected this temptation to desire kings uh, like other nations have. They would have seen the Lord as their premier leader, so how is, the, how is the Lord meant to fulfill this human longing for justice and to go before us in battle? So as, as earthly leaders, as Samuel warned, send our kids into battle because they themselves can't go and fight our battles. The Lord is the one who goes into battle and he fights for us. The cross is our king going into battle for us. That is the, the, what happened on Calvary 2,000 years ago. That is a, the moment in time in which your king went to battle for you. So that is the ways of King Jesus, the ways of the King of Israel, the supreme leader. And 2,000 years ago, even though they were mocking him, they, they were fulfilling really the heavenly reality of what was taking place by putting a crown of thorns on his head, truly marking him as a king. They put a robe on his shoulders because he is royalty. And that was our king going to battle for us. That is Calvary. It's our king going to battle for us. It's justice being carried out on our behalf. And that's the moments our hearts long for, all of us. We long for justice, for things to be made right. That's what happened in Calvary. The Lord made things right by going to battle for us. And we can never move on from the cross. Never. Never allow your heart to move on from the cross. That's when you'll start to put other people in that place as savior, as somebody who can fight your battle for you, someone who can win justice for you. They can't like King Jesus can. They can maybe gain some wins here on this earth, but they cannot win the ultimate battle for your soul like King Jesus can. He is the ultimate fulfillment of justice. So for those of you trying to wrap your minds around the ways of justice in heaven and like to begin to trust him with, with these things, of this human longing for fairness and for things to be made right, one way I like to think about it is, is in the sense of a courtroom, of a, a holy judge that stands before a courtroom and you and I, we come before the judge 
as the criminals, as the ones who have done wrong. And we, we've all done something wrong before a holy God. I mean, I stand condemned before a holy God without his grace. The thoughts that have gone on in my head, the actions that I've carried out, they, they cause me to stand condemned before a holy God. But this is justice. Justice is not just wiping it clean, as white as snow, without any sort of payment for the crimes that were committed. Instead, in this, in this holy courtroom before the judge, the judge actually points for us a defender, an attorney. It's his son. It's his very own son that he appoints for you, for you to stand by your side as your attorney, to actually win this case. And it's in that moment that the, the judge actually allows the attorney to take your place, the, the payment of, of your crime, to take your place. If you will allow him to, if you'll put your faith in that as sufficient for your crimes. And so heavenly justice is restored fully by the payment being paid for our crimes, but we have to place our faith and our trust in him. So justice is fulfilled in Jesus through him coming and fighting our battles. I'm going to have the worship team come forward. If you remember back to the warning from Samuel, so he said, I'm going to send your kids into battle because your kings can't go and fight battles for you. He's going to uh, appoint representatives and commanders to go out because he can't be everywhere at the same time. How is that different in King Jesus? Well, King Jesus does appoint people as representatives, as, as leaders and commanders in his kingdom. But the difference in, in the kingdom of God is he actually says, I'm going to go with you. It's not because he's in need of anybody. It's because of, of his desire for relation, <clears throat> excuse me, desire for relationship <clears throat> and co-laboring. That he actually appoints people to be his representatives and he says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Go and make disciples as my representatives, but I'm going with you. That's how King Jesus is different than the kings of other nations. He appoints and he goes with them. He loves to be co-heirs as we allow his kingdom to be made known on the earth. And so I could not, and in fact, I would not do what I do if the Lord had not appointed me and given me the promise of his presence. Like I just wouldn't. I would never stand before you if I didn't have that promise of his presence. And so, and then thirdly, you remember the warning from Samuel. He said, these, these kings, they're gonna, they're gonna tax you and at length. They're gonna take your livestock. They're gonna take the, the harvest from your crops. They're going to take your money. How is that different with King Jesus? Well, he is our provider completely. Like completely. In him, you have no need. And we see that in Israel. When they trusted him as supreme leader, they had no need. When they didn't, then they had need. You may, may be questioning that by, by looking at that text and saying, well, he's always mentioning the, the tenth of whatever, the tenth of the grain and the tenth of your vineyards. Isn't he just referring to tithe, which existed in the house of Israel? He's not referring to tithe because tithe for us as kingdom people is not some form of religious or kingdom taxation. Tithe is actually a gift to liberate us from, the enslave, from enslavement to money and the love of money. It is a gift for us. No one's coming to anybody's door and knocking, looking for the collection of their tithe because it's not, it's not given out of some form of uh, obligatory taxation. It's actually a gift from the Lord for us to reflect the truest sense 
of our finances that was all given to us in the first place. Therefore, in an act of worship, Lord, I'm liberating my heart from being enslaved to this money. I'm gonna give at least 10% back to you, Lord. And whether you give it here or elsewhere, it's between you and the Lord. The Lord is our provider for this house. The Lord is the provider for my house, for this house as a church. He is our provider. And so our prayer this morning is, Jesus, come and be our king. We turn from disappointments, from hurts, from the failings of other people. We are not going to get tempted into longing for human leaders to fulfill these desires, for justice and for our battles to be fought. Jesus, be our king. Would you all stand in this place? The Lord's Prayer in the Sermon on the Mount, I'm sure you're familiar. Our Father who art in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a prayer so many people have prayed so many times. R.A. Torrey said this, though, about it, which I just loved. It says this, that the kingdom will never come until the king comes. Yet there are many who have prayed often that the kingdom of God would come. And he's referring to the Lord's prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So many of us have prayed that the kingdom of God would come, but we've never prayed once that the king himself would come. And this prayer stands as the climax of Christian aspiration. And I would say it stands as the climax of human aspiration. That is our truest desire, that the king would come. It's the final prayer of the Bible. The whole revelation of the book leads up to this. How often have you prayed for this? That's my question for you this morning. How often have you prayed, come Lord Jesus, come King Jesus, come and have your way, have your place, come and be our King. So that is how this book ends. Revelation chapter 22, which won't be on the screen, but just listen to this. It says the spirit and the bride They both say come. So the ultimate colliding of the divine and humanity will be this just heart cry of come. And let the one who hears say come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let, Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. And it goes on to verse 20. He says, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. That's Jesus himself saying that. Surely I am coming soon. And John ends by saying amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And that is our heart cry. If you'd all bow your heads and close your eyes this morning, I want us to respond to the Lord. Lord, as a church family this morning, we declare you as king, the supreme over our hearts, over our lives, over this church, over our families, over our kids. You are the best leader. And we say, come and have your rightful place. We bow our hearts low before you. Saying we're submitted to you. We are yielded completely to you. Come and have your way. Come and be our king. And so, Lord, I stand before this church family this morning in prayer saying, Lord, would you heal hurts and disappointments of failings of of other human people that have rejected us or disappointed us or just come up short? Would you heal our hearts? Would you allow us to be healed of those things that sometimes taint our our view of you? We wanna see the goodness of God. 
We want to see you for who you are in your beauty, in your splendor, in your purity. We want to be able to look into the eyes of Jesus and to not be tainted by bitterness and wounds, deep heart wounds. So come as you do and heal hearts this morning. Those who have been abused, those who have been rejected, those who have been mocked, those who have been let down time and time again, those who have been hurt by hypocrisy in religious games, come and heal hearts as you do, King Jesus. Come, come and be our King. Come and demonstrate how different you are and how distinct you are from all other human leaders. You stand alone, so come and be our King. Keep your eyes closed. So I want to give an opportunity for people to respond to the Lord specifically this morning by surrendering your life to the Lord. If you're here this morning, you'd say, Drew, I'm not right with God. I came here this morning, I didn't necessarily know what to expect, but as the service has gone on, I just know that I need to get things right with the Lord. This morning, maybe you've prayed prayers in the past or whatever, made a decision for the Lord in the past. You just know this morning, there's a morning where you need to make things right with God. Would you raise your hand? I'm not gonna call you out or embarrass you. I just wanna know who I'm praying for. Thank you. Is there anybody else? Thank you, yeah. Several hands. So if you raise your hand, or honestly, even if you didn't, I give opportunities for bold response. But in the end, this is a prayer you can pray. There's no mediator between God and man except for Jesus Christ himself. So even as you leave this place and the conviction of the Lord continues to draw you to himself, you can pray a prayer like this. Lord, today I come to the end of myself. I recognize that I cannot save myself, that as I stand before you, I stand condemned. But this morning it's finally clicked that you have made a way not just by turning a blind eye to my wrongs, but by actually providing the payment for my sin. And so I place my faith in you as sufficient, as the only sufficient savior for my sin issue. And I'm not saying I'm gonna be perfect from this day forward, but I'm gonna trust you, King Jesus, with my life. I'm gonna follow your lead humbly from this day forward, no turning back. And I believe as I place my faith in you, that Holy Spirit actually comes to live inside of me and that I am made new and that today is a a day of, of new beginnings, of new life, of new birth, no turning back. Amen. Let's give those that prayed that prayer a huge hand. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord. Come on, let's praise the Lord right now. Praise King Jesus. We praise you, Lord. Hallelujah, Lord. You're worthy. You are King. Jesus is King. This has been the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc.